2: Al
1: Warren 106 point five a.m. Los 102.3 FM Riverside
0: And 1050
4: AM Palm Springs. Well, welcome back into the house of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is back from Mission Impossible seventeen.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Twenty seven. Twenty seven? Twenty no, yeah. seven no, it's actually number seven. Right. Number seven. Yeah. Wow. Some.
4: So you could put them all together and be like fourteen, fifteen, even longer, more hours.
3: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you could, sp- you could spend your life watching those films.
4: Now this is part <laughs> one. So is this really? It, it, does it really cut off and and make you go, oh my god, and you can't wait for part two? <laughs> is that? I'm just just curious well, if they left you with a big cliffhanger here.
3: Well, to, to, to some extent, they did. But oh, they they no. tied things up enough, and and now we just have to wait to next year to find oh, out what happened.
4: Is 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 he on the verge of death? Is that it? He's hanging no, from a no. rope somewhere. And no, oh.
3: no. But I, I don't want to give any spoilers. <laughs>
4: I, I don't like the audience. Who cares? <laughs> they know I don't like them. Come on, you know, it's my desirable meanness that they like. Anyway,
3: they always say nice things about you. No, they don't. <laughs>
4: I still got more bad things than you do, but that's all right. You're getting up there. Keep it I'm, up. I'm getting there. I'm trying. Keep up the good work. will win the award for the end of the year here. You know? <laughs> well, I think I'm going to go see Barbie instead of Mission. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. I'll be your Barbie girl.
3: <laughs> I'm going to wait for Barbie 7.
4: Barbie 7. I don't <laughs> think one is going to make it, but that's just my opinion. Nobody cares. you know. But, so. Anyway. Um, So now today we have got an author with us, and her new book is called Love the Sinner. Sounds like it's written about me. So here we go. So let's welcome Mo Mashati. Thank you for being here.
0: Yeah. How are you? Well, you know, I'm not
4: bad. I mean, the biggest problems I've got is deciding which movie to go see, so I'm not doing too bad, right?
0: I am actually my birthday is Friday, and I am seeing both Oppenheimer and Barbie back to back.
4: I'll tell you the nuclear bomb, it, you, and then Barbie. Like you the gotta stuff. end
0: with Gravity, I would assume. So that's why <laughs> Barbie
4: I don't understand
0: the tail end.
4: I don't understand that. I mean, the other one's going to be all serious over three hours.
1: Yeah, intense, and you gotta lighten the mood,
4: and then you gotta go watch. Barbie, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm sort of lost, you know. I guess I'm miserable because I'm just staying home. I'll let Dave do it. Dave's going, he's <laughs> he'll be in the lineup with you. He's going to go watch that. Theme. That's
0: fine. You can watch it when it comes out on video and streaming services.
4: Yeah, <laughs> I don't even, I don't, <laughs> don't know. Don't give up your
0: ducats and dollars now, just. No. Well,
4: you know, I don't mind the the idea, but I just you see the problem is. I mean, the real truth is, the Oppenheimer is over three hours, and I'm sixty one. So you know, I've got to use the bathroom three three four (laughs) or five times in an hour. How am I going to sit through three hours of that in the theater? It's
0: definitely going to give you Braveheart back. So you're going to need to stretch.
4: Yeah, it's terrible. Imagine if you had hemorrhoids. I mean, you the- <laughs>
0: come prepared for those things, I would assume.
4: Well, I know, but I mean, it's let's just,
0: put it to the audience, I guess.
4: It just seems rather uncomfortable to me. It could be. But I mean, you know, I'm sure it's going to be great. Are you going to go see it in the IMAX too,
0: or I am just seeing it in? I think it's like some sort of very fancy sound. Um, I think that's what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm going to a theater that has like the reclining barca loungers. Oh. So I'm just going to lay back and watch three hours of the film and then I can watch an hour and a half of Barbie. So.
4: Fancy. I know, I know someone that cleans those recliners and mm. I wouldn't want that job.
0: No, that's all right. No. So, so
4: what's, what is this all about here? Now you've got the book, Love the Sinner. So mm-hmm. this is, you know, the name in itself says a lot, but so tell us, what's the premise of this book?
0: So the premise of this book is actually, it's a short story collection, and it is full of eight disquieting stories bound by sin. I understand that there are seven deadly sins, but I have included one mortal sin in there at the top of the book. And what was really fun about putting this together is that my other hat is a behavioral and behavioral science. So I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. So I work with um, most of my clients are suffering from PTSD and CPTSD. And it's, you know, it's strange what us as human beings, um, will justify in the heat of the moment. So I feel like we are all guilty of all seven sins, um, of the deadliest. And I think, you know, in degrees, we're all capable of all of them. And what's fun about this book is that, Yes, there are sins involved, but there is absolutely no devil at all in this book. It is all where man is the scariest monster, where you know humans are doing the really odious things and they are trying to all along really trying to justify their reasons for doing so. so it's a, it's a pretty fun book I'm very I'm very proud of it.
4: So are you using your clients in this book?
0: <laughs> I am not. <laughs>
4: Oh, sure. You say that I, now.
0: I am not. Don't make me lose my livelihood, Al. <laughs> I am not. <laughs>
4: when you do that for a living, when mm-hmm. you're writing a book like this, yeah. it's going to have a, an influence on how you write your characters.
0: It it does and it doesn't, and it's a funny, and not in a funny ha-ha sort of way, but it's a very interesting dissociation that you have to have because you know, as any type of um, therapy, whether it's talk therapy, psychotherapy – you're dealing with a lot of very heavy subjects and having to do a lot of heavy lifting with pe- helping helping people sort through those types of things. Um, and it really kind of takes you more inward um, as to how you would handle the situation or trying to figure out why people have put themselves into this position. And I think what's interesting, especially about horror, and I had a love of the horror genre from a very, very young age um, what's interesting about it is that all of these stories, save for maybe a few factors within them, um, are all pretty plausible, um, things. And I think that that's what the scary thing is the reality of how far we'll go to either get something done or get revenge or, you, you know, keep our pride intact, things of that nature. I think it's very interesting to kind of look at it from 30,000 feet and just, Kind of be in awe of the capacity that we have to to do the things that we that humans do.
4: Yeah, you now when you do a story, when you set up your um, characters mm-hmm. to be in these situations where they have to decide on making or you know ha- they have to make some sort of decision. that's kind of how I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is it did, did you come up with the storyline first? and then develop characters to fit in it? Or did you have these characters on the side already created, and then you decided to put them in these situations?
0: Um, well, every story that I do is very – always the idea is fully formed. So I have a very a lengthy outlining system um, when I write. It's, you know, the idea is this is the beginning and middle of the end, and I have that before I completely flesh out a story. And then I will kind of break the story down into however many acts the story has. Sometimes it's it's three act story, sometimes it's a five act story. Um, but I'll write what needs to happen in each act of the story, and then I will flesh out the story from there. So everybody already has a character name. We've already got a title. We already know what the ending is. And I say we as my <laughs> my left and right brain uh, working together, my scientific and just my fun horror brain. But I, I have that extensive piece because it makes it really easy for me to write, and it also makes it easy for me to kind of flesh out in between if I want to have like a B story or kind of like a side quest for the character to have, and then get back to back on track. I'm able to do that very very easily with the outline. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's stuff that people don't ever see or get to read, but it <laughs> definitely helps me flesh out um, the characters. Um, Really, really
4: well. Well, I'd imagine, but when you write write them as short stories,
3: mm-hmm.
4: you have to make sure that your words really count. Yes, you know what I mean, because mm-hmm. you go, you you can't just you're not going on and you're not going into big history descriptions of how this person grew up and why this and why that. So you kind of be got to be very precise. People have got to know your characters fairly fast as compared to a regular novel.
0: Yes. I mean, tell that to Stephen King, because he even does that in his short stories. (laughs) Does give them a full world and a backstory. But, you know, he's Stephen King. he can do that now. Um, But, yeah, you really have to, with short stories, especially if you are, you know, trying to stay in a particular word count, which a lot of short story anthologies do, which is a collection of stories of um, a lot of authors. Sometimes it's 10, 20 authors that are writing a story. And you have to stay within the constraints of whatever word count they give you but also trying not to stay too long. The, the best advice I've ever gotten on writing a short story is arrive as late as possible and leave as early as possible. And even if that means not resolving the story fully, um, because there's nothing scarier and horror with not really knowing what the ending is or some, having something be very ambiguous and chilling um, is also like, a, it's a, an additional character. So it really works well. But, yeah, when you are writing short, you you don't have a lot of time to hang around and describe the scenery or, you know, take them back to a a big thought that they had. Um, So it does make you be, if you can be as concise as possible and also, you know, leave your flowery language at the door, I think, um, because people will kind of lose track, especially if you're just being a little too verbose in order to just kind of fill words. And readers can usually tell when you're just trying to take up space.
3: How, how do you create your outline? Do you use any particular tools? Do you have a method?
0: Yeah, I use a pen and a notebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's
3: let, let me write this down.
0: Yes, I know. And I'm, I'm so analog with stuff. I wish I could say that it's like, oh, I use this, this website or, you know, this Google Doc. I don't. I really get, you know, every story that I have. My, my house is flooded with notebooks, uh, one subject, five subject notebooks, and I'll go and there's, you know, I'll, I'll do the title and what I write is short form. I have two other books coming out next year that are a volume one and a volume two of a series and that's what I write. So I'll write my title, I'll write all my acts, and I'll kind of scribble in as I, as I go along. So it's it's a very old school analog way to do things, but it it works for me because I know I can always go back and and reference and I don't have to worry about, you know, did I delete something or and sometimes you go back to an old idea that where a story like just did not work until you confront it with a new idea. and then then you still have that amalgamation to make because you can you can pull up that old notebook and look at that old idea. So that's also worked for me. There's a story in Love the Sinner that was actually two stories um, that I combined into one. And that was a really, really fun exercise. And I was, so, <laughs> I was so proud that I still had that first notebook around because I knew that there was a kernel of an idea somewhere that would definitely fit and expand the, the story that I was trying to create.
4: Well, what makes a good story for you?
0: Ooh. Um, as a reader or a writer?
4: Well, you know, both. If they're different, both. Sometimes it's the same. Yeah, give us give us a rundown.
0: I think as a reader, what makes a good story for me is I don't ever want to know where I'm headed. I think that it's – and I've read stories where I'm just – you know, you can figure out what's going to happen towards the end because, you know, the play is a little obvious or – you know, things are foreshadowed a little a little too heavy handed. And I still enjoyed them, but I feel like the the best stories I've read are stories where it the either the ending or the last, you know, third of the story just just hits you with a wallop and you're just like, Whoa, I didn't think <laughs> I didn't think we were heading there or or oh my God, like that's terrifying. Those are my favorite. And I have ones that I kind of go back to over and over, even though I know how they end, it's just the way that they're told and constructed are just really beautiful pieces of work. And um, I think as a writer, what makes a good story for me is just kind of reading it back and being really satisfied with the structure that I've given it. When you write something and nothing has been truer than, than this for me in the last coming weeks, my book just came out on July 5th. Um, is when you, you know, you, you put your book baby out into the world, right? And then I always think about it as, if you've ever seen those plastic surgery shows <laughs> where the people come in and then they mark them all up with marker and all the things are going to change about them. Um, that's kind of how it feels, you know, putting a book out and, and saying, here's my baby. And please feel free to, to mark up my baby and tell me how ugly my baby is and then <laughs> tell me how you would improve my baby and make it the prettiest baby um and i think that that's what's been nice for me as a as a writer having you know reading it back and being like this was a good story this was fun. like i had fun putting this together and you have to find the joy in it because sometimes writing is incredibly isolating especially as an author you're very isolated from you know it's not like you're writing as a group or sometimes people don't have any idea people to have ideas to bounce off of. So when you finally get there and you're just like everything I, I did for this story, everything I omitted or everything I added made it what it is now. And it's, it's a really satisfactorily good story.
4: Yeah. I've been isolated in the old age home now for about six years. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
0: That's too bad. No,
4: it's, it's better for everyone. It really, It is. is. <laughs> <laughs> now, What's your idea of horror? Like, are you the suspense, scary sort of mental horror, or are you more into having violence within the scenes?
0: I like it all, really. I mean, I feel like there's only a few things that I don't really, really like, because I'm also an avid horror film fan from a very, very young age. I think the only things that I don't like... Or maybe I don't want to say I don't like them because I, I, I've powered through them, I guess. Um, the only things that I don't like are, I think, just like gratuitous assault for the purpose of just being gratuitous assault. Um, it's not adding anything to the story. And there's a lot of, you know, early um, slasher films that are like that. Um, one that comes to mind is The Toolbox Murders, which is like incredibly... Just graphic um, and staying too long on scenes where you just really don't need to. And, you know, you worry about the mental health of the actresses um, after that film. But for my favorite horror is probably, it's always going to be psychological horror. I love like a mind meld in horror, especially psychological horror seems to be the most relatable, I think, because we have all been kind of messed with. I mean, that's why pranks work, because they play on our mind. And, you know, you put that prank in a horrific or a terrifying situation, it's very effective. It's very effective very quickly. And it also stays with you. It kind of follows you home a little bit. So that's hands down probably going to be my favorite horror genre because there's, so m- there's millions of subgenres to horror, which I absolutely love.
4: Or do you, do you stay conscious of uh, violence and how you, how you put it on the page?
0: Yeah, I, I I personally do. Um, I think that there is there is torture and violence in my book. If anyone's looking for that, <laughs> I thought you were um, going to say in my life. Or... If you're <laughs> in the market, um, there is in, there in the book, but I'm I'm very mindful of why it's there. It has to be purposeful. Um, there's one story that is incredibly torture heavy, um, because that is the that's the nucleus of the story that's what the whole story is kind of spinning around. And I find that really purposeful. Um, But if, you know, it's and some genres, especially literary, um, are there to be aggressively violent. I mean, that's, that's their genre. And I feel like that's, that's great. If you can write in that genre, it's not something that I'm capable of. Um, at least not yet. I think I, I I don't want to flex that for myself yet, just because I have that that fear of um and especially knowing what I do um working with people through PTSD <laughs> and not mm. wanting to kind of um emotionally capitalize on that. Um I think I like to just kind of stay what my lane is right right now, and maybe that's something I'll explore at a later time.
2: Mm.
4: You're, now, so your characters, what kind of relationship do you have with your characters? And I ask this because we get so many different responses. Some people hear them. Some people see them. Some say it's like a movie, it's voices. And, and some consider their characters, their friends or family and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you describe your situation?
0: I think I always see, just because I, my, I started out in screenwriting um, as a screenwriter. So everything is always very visual for me um and that, i think that comes across in my literary work as well in my the way i describe a scene or just describe my characters um actions or motions but i think that it's always kind of a movie scene and i always kind of think of them as not necessarily friends but you know these are these are unfortunately these are people that i know <laughs> and i say unfortunately because you know we've all had to, to we hang- all have family <laughs> yeah, we all have a family, um, so I think we all know how to feel about this. But it it is, you, and that's a great analogy for it. It definitely feels like a family reunion where you're around people that you need to be around um, because that you know there's a means to an end. But I also, from my screenwriting um, side, there's also not a di- a line of dialogue in the stories that I haven't said aloud. And I think that's really important to make sure, at least for myself, when I'm writing, um, that whatever's being said is not just an like an ugly co- collection of words. Um, it might sound pretty when it's like written on the page, but if somebody is reading it, a lot of us are our internal dialogue readers. So we're hearing our own voice read the story, and if if you're jumbling over the words because it's just such an ugly pattern or there's just it's just too verbose or too too much um, i'm going to take the reader out of it so i'm always very cognizant of does this dialogue even flow Is right. this being said in the character's voice now that we know who the character is and their motivations and and whatnot is this something that they would say so i always try to be very aware um, that i don't take my reader out of it by what i'm trying to put on the page
3: well, you know, I was surprised to learn that, you know, like 20 to 50% of people have no internal dialogue. Yeah. They, they, they can't hear themselves think. i was just wondering, <laughs> but, but it sounds like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's really strange, I, but it sounds like you can hear your characters.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. And that may be where I need to see a therapist.
3: That's great. Me too.
0: Neither hither nor thither. Um, but, yeah, I, I was just hearing that fact a couple years ago, and I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean you don't have an it Like, what I, did, mm. I, I couldn't figure, I could not wrap my brain around it. And I was sitting there like, how do you think? How do you make decisions? If you don't sit there right. and argue with yourself in the shower, if you're not, you know, <laughs> like, talking <laughs> to yourself throughout your entire house all day, um, I, I, it, it boggles my mind. But, I mean, science, man, I guess that's where we're at. But, yeah, I can definitely <laughs> hear um, all of my characters, especially there is a character at the the story that closes the book is the the longest story in the book. And there is a a character in there that I, I adore and he has a very distinct voice in my head and from a distinct character from a very uh, favorite show of mine, um, Deadwood from a long time ago. And I, I absolutely love hearing that. (laughs) And I've tried (laughs) to emote that and it's, Pretty terrible. It sounds like Scrooge McDuck. Um, it's not great, but I, I I love hearing them, and I I love kind of working that out. I just think it's important for to make sure that you know your dialogue sounds good. Right.
4: But you do they tell you to do weird things? They do
0: not. No. not you know, I think I'm not. safe.
4: <laughs> <You're sorry. laughs>
0: well, for that's good.
4: That's good. Just checking yeah. to see if you should be allowed out in public.
0: Yeah, it's okay. It's good to have someone got thank you for having my back.
4: Well, just making <laughs> sure, you know, to keep everyone safe here. You do. Um, hey, listen. So what um what happens to your characters then when when you're done? The book's done. Book's yeah. out. It's over. Do yeah. they continue with you or do you just cut them off and say, I've, uh, you know, been there, done that. Bye.
3: Oh,
0: I would love For the character that I just mentioned to end up in another story, um, I just don't think he's he's done. Um, I may have a chronicle, you know, have to do like the chronicles of.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
0: Because he's just he just so he he was one of the characters that was just so fully formed and just so real and vivid before I even began the story. Like I knew I wanted them to have this persona and this kind of like swagger to them and this huge personality that kind of eats the story. Um so hopefully they will stick around, but every everyone else I feel like they they've completed their mission and we're ready to kind of move move them on from you know, move on from them and and let them be in the world that they're in.
4: So, with these kinds of stories, and and you know, by the sounds of it, um, there there is a meaning behind each story. There is mm-hmm. like a subtext or something that you want the person to become aware of or, or, or yes. realize. I think that's just that's my guess. Is this true?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. So each story begins with a just kind of like a peek into who the character is. And it's usually the character kind of at their highest level of where they are in that sin. So each story is represented by a sin. Each main character is either living through that sin, creating that sin, or the product of that sin. And the first page you read before you get to the story gives you a little bit of a peek into their psyche, really. Um, just to kind of prepare you for who you're going to deal with before you get into it, which I thought was a really, that, that actually kind of happened by not necessarily like a, a kind of a happy mistake. It started with the first story, which is called the battle between boys. And it was, how do I, do I start the story with this kind of inner dialogue or do I just kind of start the book with that? And, I just started the book with it, and then I said, you know, everybody, every character in this book has something to say um, that that has nothing to do with the story, that has nothing to do with what they're going to go through during, you know, the actions through the story, like how can I give them a little bit extra room to breathe, and that's where we did. We started off with just kind of giving you a little insight into who they are and how they operate before you jump in, and I i think that was a that was a lot of fun and it might be something that i kind of carry through it as a branding i guess um because it was a lot of fun to to do and to delve into
4: so with with your with each one of these stories when you go through it do you do you, do you find that you you change somewhat as a writer
0: yeah um and that was a question that was put to me a few weeks ago was you know when you're writing these You know, how do you stay within the story? I think for me, it's every story is very self contained. Um, when you put a book together in whatever software program you're using, it's usually you know, you start a story, then the next story comes right after that, and you can keep scrolling upwards and and look at everything. But before I really built the book and, and put it together in the order that it's in, I needed to write each story as if it was not going to be in a book. If I as if I was submitting it to an anthology and the story had to absolutely stand on its own two legs um, and not be thematic. And I think that was a challenge for me to say, how can I make this story matter to someone? And what has to change within the story? Because it's easy to have, oh, this is a collection about, you know, ghost stories. And every story has a ghost in it. But how do you make your one ghost story stand out of 20 other ghost stories? So I had to be really diligent and kind of redirect the way I was outlining and kind of reverse engineer it. The how, what is the feeling that I want to provoke at the end? Okay, we're going to start there and then work backwards. So there is a lot of stories that I wrote backwards <laughs> for mm. this book because it was, you know, Writing chronologically, um, you you tend to add too much and, and kind of circle the airport before you get to the point. And I knew that that was happening with a few of the stories. So I said, okay, well, how do we, what is my best course of action? I want, I want people to, to, to really, I want people to really hate this person at the end of the story. Um, because lot, not a lot of these characters are likable. And I think that that's real life. Not everybody is is a great guy. Not everybody, you know, has a happy ending. And I think that that's so real to life um, that I had to, to coincide with, okay, you're not going to be able to write this straight through. So it definitely gave me a new skill, I guess. So changing me as a writer that way um, was learning how to write an effective story backwards.
3: Well, I'm wondering, do, do you sometimes write backwards because your characters might take over? and kind of, uh, you know, take the plot off the rails.
0: Oh, 100%. <laughs> that,
3: yeah. 100%. Um,
0: because they can, and you're just like, oh, I, I want them to explore this, and, oh, this would be a funny conversation, or, or I could, you know, have this conversation, and we could do a little exposition here and, and not have to, like, explain and add a chapter. Um, but you do, yeah, you get off the rails quick, especially when you're writing uh, psychological horror, because it's easy to. It's easy to try to go explore another avenue of either the character's brain or, or who they're dealing with or their own motivations. It's so easy to get lost in the quicksand. So yes, definitely. <laughs> and I can learn very quickly when that it, it's going to be one of those stories. And like I said, I have a two book collection coming out next year that also has a few stories that had to be written backwards because I was just like, where, where is this headed? Where are we going? <laughs> Cause we've lost the, we've lost the plot entirely. Um, so that's been, I'm,
4: I'm glad that I had that skill to, to fall back on with it. Wow. So when you're doing this, um, and going through the process and putting, putting together the stories and stuff, have you ever come or started writing, um, and to a, and when you hit a certain point, you don't like what you're writing and you don't use the story? Like, has that ever happened to you?
0: Yes. Yes, it has. Um, and like I said, that I was so happy to have that old notebook where I had one of those stories that was just like, this is such a great idea, but I just cannot, there's something in the story that is not allowing itself to execute it. And I think that's important to kind of keep them around. I love kind of, it's like when you have, you know, you're telling somebody a story or telling somebody a, a plot to a movie that you can't remember and you know what it is, and you've seen it, and you liked it, and then you're trying to explain it to someone else, and they're just glazing over. They just don't. They just don't get it. Um, that's kind of how it is to have a story that you know you feel very deeply, and it just doesn't work. And you have to be okay with like putting it away and saying, you know what, this is this is not your time to like live this book life yet, um, and that's okay. And some stories are never going to make it, and there is complete stories um that I have that I absolutely love the idea to that have just never found a home. Um I've submitted them, you know, dozens of places and it's, it's always been, you know, not now, but I can still absolutely love that story, but know that maybe just in this notebook is the only place that you're going to live. And that's okay too.
4: Now, uh, do you find that you have to be in a certain mood or place in your mind in order to write these stories, or can you just sit down and go anytime you're free? <sighs>
0: I wish I was consistent about it, um, because there's sometimes where I say, "Okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna write today. We we need to do two stories to, today. We have got to get them out." Um, and and I'm really effective with it. Some days I shine real bright, <laughs> and some days it's like, "Well, that's 400 words, and now we're gonna go watch like four reruns of The Golden Girls because I don't have anything else in me to to give today." And You know, I've been really, really dry for stories. Sometimes I haven't written anything in a a few weeks. Um, And that's, you know, it's it's hard to find the inspiration when it starts to feel like a job. Um, And I think that's with anything. And you lose kind of the creative juice from it. But I feel like the thing that gets me back on track is reading other people's stories or watching um, films that I admire. And something kind of clicks in my brain to say, oh, I like how they did that. And I'm going to try to either put that nuance in my story or that gave me an idea for where I was running blank on it. But I'm not I'm not a consistent writer. (laughs) Mm. It just kind of is what it is. It took me probably about six months to write Love the Sinner. And um, I started writing it in November. Yeah. Beginning of November of 2021. And I finished in almost the end of March, early April, 2022. I submitted it and got a contract for it in July. So it was, it was a baby. It was a baby book. (laughs) Like it was just born. And then I sent it out. Um, But it did take me a while to kind of get that, Together and that's to me seems like a long time half of a year to try to write books and you know spending time around a lot of uh, authors as a new author that, that are that are drilling out you know hundred thousand plus word novels sometimes three or four times a year um, and I I do not have that type of stamina as of yet I will let you know when yeah. I get there because <laughs> it's not any time soon I don't think
4: yeah drink more coffee.
0: I
3: can't <laughs> <laughs> well
4: I, I tell you you know, but being in uh behavioral science mm-hmm. and let's say the last three, five years and stuff, and looking at the way people have behaved over let's say the pandemic and mm-hmm. politics and life and all that in in the us and even the world but when you when you look at that, has it changed? your opinion of people or do you, can you, can you understand why people act the way they do so much? So like, as we've seen,
0: I mean, I, yes. And no, I mean, I feel like there is right now, currently there is such a cycle of all behaviors, acceptable behavior. And, you know, we're kind of regardless of, of consequence where we're making um, concessions for things that we, that we would not have even five years ago. Um, hate speech or, um, things that are directed, directed at a, you know, particular groups or things that are just very volatile in nature. I feel like that it's kind of been given a pass, um, because everyone is, you know, we all went through a global event where everyone was angry and everyone was scared and everyone was petrified and everyone was very cautious, and I think that we've been kind of caught in that whirlwind where, you know, don't you know how upset I am or don't you know how angry I am? And you should understand how disgruntled I feel. Um, I think that that is a, it's an interesting dynamic to watch globally because as much as we say it's, you know, it's a, it's a, an American problem. It's definitely a global problem. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah as yeah, We've yeah. noticed um, it, you know, just kind of watching the news and kind of just kind of watching it quietly, you know, spread across the map. And not to say that we're ground zero for any of it, but it's just yeah. to quietly go across. But as a as a behavioral therapist, and especially someone who teaches people emotional reactivity, um, it's been very I wouldn't say very difficult, but it's been a little slower going because there's When you have to look at emotional reactivity or how you react to a situation, there's a level of accountability you have to have for your own emotions in order to look at that and say, that's a wrong behavior or that's a behavior that's not helping me and pivot to something different. It's that accountability piece that's the slower piece because you can't make the change, right? If somebody tells you, oh, Dave, that's a bad habit until you feel that it's a bad habit, you're not going to see where people are saying that's a bad habit. Um, so that accountability piece has been really slow with getting people to kind of change their, their verbiage or their, their motivations for things. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely given me a, a, a new perspective on people, yeah. especially from an accountability standpoint, because nobody really seems to want to do that these days.
4: No. And, and it must be kind of bizarre when you have to deal with people because you never know where they're based at. Because, I mean, yeah. you know, it's crazy. We've got people out there running around the world flat and and into conspiracies yeah. and kind of crazy and going really, really, really off mm-hmm. into weird ideas. And, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to deal with that on a professional basis. <laughs> I just like, yeah,
0: was... I mean, mo- mo- I will say predominantly my clientele are people that mostly um people that have gone through trauma or assault survivors. So it's that type of, you know, behavioral analysis or even that type of emotional reactivity comes with also like a lot of shame attached to it. So sometimes, you know, they they are nothing but accountability because they they blame themselves for things. So it's You know, getting that that weird juxtaposition of folks that don't want to take accountability coming from, you know, an an aspect where, you know, 80 percent of your clientele used to be too accountable um, and taking the ownership of things that weren't really theirs. It's been not necessarily um, entirely too challenging, but it's definitely been an exercise in in patience and and kind of. Understanding, I guess to the point where everyone is handling things much differently than they were four years ago from right. an emotional standpoint.
4: Right, right. Four years ago, they would just get drunk.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you just think <laughs> like everyone else.
4: <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, think you
0: think. Yeah.
4: So, so what are your inspirations then in writing?
0: Ooh, oh, my inspirations are, Ooh, um, from probably from other author standpoints, I've always been obsessed with um, Ray Bradbury's work from very very young. Um, Rod Serling's work because I think that both of them um, were very very good at world building in a very short period of time. Um, Ray Bradbury wrote a short story every day of his life from the age of eleven till the day he died. Like it's just. <laughs> That is also a stamina that I do not possess. Um, but I think in that in that exercise, he was so adept at getting, arriving late and leaving early and just really dropping you into the story. And that's something that I've, I've learned to do effectively for myself. I, uh, my longest story at the end of the book does take um, a little longer to get into, not necessarily learning about the character, but it's, it's, they are reciting something very chronological that's very important to them. So it's, you have to kind of stay in that timeline, but they've been really inspirational to me. Obviously Stephen King was really inspirational to me. Shirley Jackson, her humor in her, her writing, um, especially in her horror writing is so brilliant because you don't realize that in sometimes in that humor that, she's making really unlikable people likable and funny. And you kind of want to root for the bad guy <laughs> in her stories. <laughs> I think that, that that makes it really fun. And that's something that I try to incorporate with my characters for Love the Sinner. Cause like I said, um, not all of them are somebody you'd want to go out and hang out with or have a drink with. They're, they're people that, you know, have very ill intentions or they're just not, you know, likable people. And it's kind of fun to see them kind of fall and and get their just desserts. But also the brevity is important, especially when you're dealing with psychological horror, you don't want to keep people suspended in their in that kind of uh, mental landscape for too long um, because then people will kind of get lost. But I think that those three really, I mean, other inspirations are obviously um, I love Clive Barker's films. I love his writing and the, he's probably one of my, and one of the new things now is emo horror or emotional horror. And that's like your haunting of Hill house and haunting of Bly Manor. Like Mike Flanagan is an absolute um, genius at emotional, sad horror. But I think that Clive Barker was one of the first ones that I would probably attach that also that tag to, because his stories are very visceral and, and emotional, emotionally charged. Um and sad, quite sad. And I think that that's so also relatable, also makes psychological horror um and body horror be very um relatable and easy easily palatable to people who might not think that they are horror lovers.
4: So are you big on social media? Do people find Mo? Oh,
0: around? yeah. You can find Mo Machadi on Twitter. That's where most of my my writing stuff is, I'm actually also part of um, a co-member, uh, co-producer, core member of Nix For Collective. We are a women-led content media company, and we are working to elevate and celebrate uh, diverse creatives. We have a film challenge that I think will be upticking again this year. We did it for 2021 and 2022. Um, and we were, uh, the Shutter Channel was our streaming service for that, so we got to work with this horror giant uh, of streaming services, and they really believed in our project. I'm also a um, part of Stowe Story Labs with Nix. We've created a fellowship for uh, women identifying writers over 40 that are working in genre. Um, women over 40 in the writing and film industry is there's tons of us, but we don't have the accessibility that men do. Um, so it's very important for us to create that space. So, And I'm also a lecturer on horror cinema, especially trauma in horror cinema. So I've done that with Prairie View, Texas A&M. I do it a lot with Horror Bath Sig out of the U.K. and especially Sheffield Hallam University out of the U.K. And I just um, will be doing one next week at the actually this saturday i'll be working with them for fair 2000 uh horror uncaged i'll be speaking on uh race tropes and trauma within black horror cinema so all all of that's on twitter i'm i'm kind of everywhere a little bit of a horror octopus
4: (laughs) octopus now do you have a website as well or
0: i do it's just momashotty.com
4: well, that's a real easy one.
0: You Super know, easy. You gotta keep it easy.
4: Gotta keep it easy. And this this Stephen King guy does he write horror? He does. Who? Who? Yeah, Stephen King. <laughs> you
3: know.
0: He's an up and comer. You might not yeah. have heard of him before. Yeah, I couldn't in find him author. on
4: Amazon. So yeah, <laughs> I was just case. wondering. He mustn't. He mustn't have a deal yet. But um, no,
0: he's trying know. though.
4: Well, you know, <laughs> prodigy. Just, yeah, keep it, keep it up. Don't just keep on pushing, and it will work out. Keep on
0: pushing, it, it'll happen yeah. for you. Yeah,
4: just keep moving forward, and don't. He doesn't even it.
0: get edited anymore. Like it's that, like he's that good. Like, oh, well. you wrote another one. Write directly to Prince Stephen. Sweet. <laughs> like like, wow. Well. I want, I want that kind of deal.
4: <laughs> oh, just do it. Dave's got one of those deals. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, it works it works really well. So what's what's next for Mo? Like, what's Mo gonna do now?
0: Oh well, um, just gonna keep promoting this book for the next six months, um, because I then will start promotion on the next book that is gonna come out in May of next year. So, yeah. Um, Are you
4: working on? Pro- I mean, do you have? Like I always have five or six projects going at, the, yeah. at a time. And yeah. are you that type or you do one at a time? And- no,
0: absolutely. I'm finishing up a fourth book um, right now. I am working on um, several projects. I do journalism for um, Fangoria's uh, Terror Teletype. So I work for with them as well. Um, and then I'm working on a nonfiction book based on the horror cinema lecturing that I do. And I'm also writing a syllabus to bring that lecture to different colleges and university film programs across the country and beyond. so I'm always working on something.
4: Why don't you um, give that Stephen King a try and maybe work something do something with him and maybe help get his career going?
0: Yeah that's completely unfeasible, but thank you for the vote of
4: confidence. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, give him a chance, the poor guy. I mean, he uh, might not be that he might not be that good, but, you know. with
0: me, kid. You'll go places, Stephen. Yeah,
4: yeah, it takes time, that's all. It a does. Of, a little bit of time and effort, and soon he'll be he'll be doing a doing a movie or
0: something. <laughs> just one. We'll just, just, get one. Movie. Well, just one. I mean, come yeah. on,
4: let's not, let's not get too you know, inflate it here. We nope. just...
0: No, one movie, no franchises, absolutely Yeah,
4: yeah. I don't want to do that. Anymore, <laughs> anyway, well, we appreciate um, you coming on the show. Yeah, and talking of course. About your, your your writing and all that stuff. And, of course, your, your newest book is called Love the Sinner, of course, which is a story about me. And, <laughs> and of course. We Unauthorized
0: biography. Yeah, that's it, it, it,
4: almost identical. I know the cover on the book. Huh? It looks just like me, except for I think I think the cover, I think the skull there's got more hair than I do. Could but,
0: possibly. <laughs> you,
4: know, but, you know, it looks a little bit like a hippie. <laughs> but that's okay. Anyway, and um, our guest has been Mo Machadi, so thank you for being here.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
3: Thanks, Mo.
1: You've been listening to the House of Mystery
2: radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts,